Welcome to the Tactics Meeting. I'm your host, Dan Smiley, and here on the program, we talk about all things emergency response, including tactics and technology. And today, we're going to be talking about drones, specifically the United States Coast Guard's drone or unmanned aerial vehicle program here in the Pacific Northwest at District 13. And we've been flying drones for emergency response for a while now. We blew it on the Tacoma fire. For the last two weeks, I've been the planning section chief down in California, where we've been flying, or California Fish and Wildlife has been flying their drone for situational awareness along the shoreline. And they have been getting amazing photographs and been stitching together a composite mosaic to show the entire shoreline, which is quite incredible. So I think it's really appropriate to talk about what the Coast Guard's capabilities are and the direction that they're going in this program. So this is a talk that was given at the Washington State Maritime Cooperative Annual Seminar back in October of 2022, and I'm really happy to bring this to you. It's going to be great, so stick around. Today's episode of the Tactics Meeting is brought to you by Portage Bay Solutions, supporting the emergency response community with their Easy 213RR app. So go check that out over at their website, and I thank Portage Bay Solutions for their support. Now, let's get to this amazing episode. The U.S. Coast Guard, we approximately a year ago have started a uh, SPS UAS platform. SPS is just uh, Sector to Puget Sound. UAS is unmanned aerial system. Um, we are every pilot in uh, Sector Puget Sound is actually 107 qualified, so we actually had to take uh, commercial tests. So we are commercial pilots. Uh, we have two types of drones uh, pictured here: Typhoon One and uh, Evo One. We have two Evo Ones and one Typhoon. The other Typhoon is somewhere around Whidbey Island. <laughs> um, it was a bit of a malfunction and it just kind of fell out of the sky. So the advantages are are huge as far as uh, response is concerned. We can bring these anywhere. They can be launched from just about anywhere. Um, five minutes setup is really, that's including phone calls to the, uh, our Jayhawk, which is the Joint Harbor operation center and uh that's stating we're going to fly we have up to 30 minute flight time per battery we have currently five batteries for the evo um which is the smaller one on the bottom and i believe we have five batteries for the typhoon typhoons have been giving us quite a bit of uh, technical issues so we don't fly them as much uh however both of these can't both of these drones have uh 4k videos they we can fly up to 400 feet which is with uh, legal uh, authorization and uh, they can be recovered by uh, especially the typhoon can be recovered by a person like landing in their hand and taking off from their hands the evo is not quite the same thing it has to be it has to come down on uh, solid ground um sorry 
There is approximately a two-mile range, and that's really dependent on static interference, trees, and things like that. But we do get quite a bit of range. Uh, I just deployed to Aleutian Isle, which is in San Juan Islands. I launched from some point, and I was able to go probably a mile south and a mile north of uh, the actual incident. So it's it can, you can cover a ton of space. Um, we have one UAS instructor at this time at our unit. He's the only person who can actually sign off any new qualification packages and actually get new drone pilots up and ready. Uh, we have eight qualified pilots, and we are currently in the works of getting uh, three new ones. And I think that number is actually going to go up to nine pilots. Uh, we just had somebody pass their 107 test. So limitations, uh, rain, fog, and snow, <laughs> three nautical mile visibility, line of sight, and video feed. We had a lot of fog in the area lately. That is uh, definitely a big issue, and uh, the smoke is not helping out either. So um, we have a lot of <clears throat> we have a lot of uh, naval assets around here, um, such as um, the submarine base on the west side. I can't recall the name of it. Uh, this, Bangor, thank you. And uh, we have would be Naval Air Station. There's also SeaTac uh, Airport, which actually has a pretty considerable airspace, and Boeing and Renton. Uh, those do limit our flight capabilities. Uh, civilian entities such as Boeing and SeaTac, we can find a way around. And uh, Everett Naval Air uh, Everett Everett Naval Base, we can we have flown around it. We got their permission as well as Bremerton. However, Bangor is, is an absolute no-fly zone, uh, as you can imagine. I actually did deploy next to Bangor, and uh, we use a system called uh, Aloft. We can, it's an app on your phone. You literally draw the square you where you want to fly, how high you want to fly, and it, could, it tells you whether you need authorization or not. Most of the time, we don't need authorization. I deployed right next to Bangor. I had about a hundred, a hundred feet worth of uh, non-regulated uh, airspace in front of my in front of me, and I used that 100 feet exactly. <laughs> so it was pretty, it was pretty nifty. Very helpful. Um, let's see. So fall of 2021. We started the implementation. It all started with uh, study groups and uh, taking the FAA test before we even started with the training. In spring of 22, the qualified instructors from uh, headquarters came out and uh, gave us our requirement or package for qualifications, everything we need to get signed off, and uh, our standard operating procedures. We have checklists and all these uh, steps before we have to fly. And uh, and now we use um, we use these drones on a nearly daily basis. They have really changed the face of response. What used to take us uh, two hours to do a dock walk at a, any marina can be done within 30 seconds after flying a drone. Um, the top picture is actually the Admiral's house. 
at uh, Alki Beach. So in fiscal year 22, over 220 UAS missions were flown. Uh, Hilo flights are about $21,000 per hour. Small boat responses for an hour are 1.5, uh, 1.5, I'm sorry, $1,500 per hour. And that is on the lower side. That's a 29 RBS of so 45 is actually more expensive. And um, their UAS program saved about $650,000 in U.S. Coast Guard assets over the year of 2022 fiscal year. Um, that actually is not accurate anymore. It's gone up since we just got our latest numbers from uh, Aleutian Isle. Um, my deployment to Aleutian Isle over five days, as an example, saved the uh, U.S. Coast Guard approximately $70,000 in Hilo flights. So that just gives you a round idea. Every pilot in fiscal year 22 has saved at a minimum over $100,000 worth of taxpayers' money. Uh, we have used it in law enforcement missions, um, maritime security, incident response, and recently we actually used it in search and rescue. Um, during the after the would-be plane crash, if anybody's familiar with it, it happened a couple of weeks ago. I was up there and uh, I actually flew the drone in hopes of maybe detecting something. So that was kind of a new facet for us. Uh, it obviously is great for public affairs. It creates great pictures, and we are able to track down sheens and such things. Um, it's it's really fantastic as far as giving a great overall image of everything that's going on. And um, it's really easy to use. We have micro SD cards which go into the drone. We get them out, you airdrop them to a telephone, and you can upload them to an iPad and then send them to whoever needs to. I mean, we can have an image taken from the drone into uh, the captain of the port's hands in 15 minutes. So it's it's really direct and instant. This episode of the Tactics Meeting is brought to you by Easy213. Easily manage resource requests and approvals during an incident or exercise. The Easy213 application is available for web browsers, iPad OS, iOS, and it's available on the desktop. Manage multiple incidents, unlimited resource requests, digital signature capture, alerts when a new uh, order has been placed. I've used it for three exercises and people love it. For more information, go to portagebay.com backslash easy213. And we thank them and Portage Bay for their support of the tactics meeting. Now let's get to this amazing episode. Um, so above we have some beautiful images of the Fauntleroy Ferry Dock Collision. So if you can't, is there a pointer on this? Um, so... In a case like this one, I don't think there was an actual sheen created. Uh, however, within the same week, we had another plane crash right off of Alki, and we were we were able to determine that a massive uh, oil sheen was present in the water. And 
from ground level, you can't actually see that sheen. So it's really brought a whole new perspective to our response world. Um, Lake Union is well known for vessel sinkings, ves uh, lots of spilling. Um, as you can see, pictures of uh, sheen on the left and right hand side. Uh, just last Sunday, I flew the drone over Lake Union and found a 300 foot by 100 foot sheen. Can't find the owner, but one of the advantages of having the drone is if we do get out there in time is we can actually probably trace back to a potential responsible party. And in Lake Union, where thousands upon thousands of boats are located, it could um, actually really make a difference in identifying a responsible party or an origin and eliminating 95% of all boats in the area within a few minutes. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, this is my, this is my fourth year doing a uh, third year doing this. I've been doing pollution response in one shape or capacity for 10 years now. And, uh, fall is always a fun season in Seattle. <laughs> this is the excavation project of, um, Coleman dock down by the waterfront by the ferry. Um, this was not nearly as big as we anticipated until we flew the drone. And, um, the same night that this first occurred, the very next day we had a giant spill of mystery spill, um, at North Lake Union, North Lake Union, North Lake shipyards. That's where we identified it over 150 gallons of, uh, diesel spill diesel was recovered there, but Again, uh, thanks to the drone, we were able to locate quite a bit of quite a quite a bit of it where it gathered the most, and uh, are where it would be most effective for us to concentrate our forces for gathering of the oil. <clears throat> what I want to point out about this one is that I think originally the contractors thought that the entire sheen was captured within the first boom which is the black barrier and they were not really aware that it had spilled out so so that was from dredging they uh to be honest with you i i was not assigned to that because i actually was pulled into extra duty to respond to north lake shipyard on that one so we were spread pretty thin that week and it was Christmas. <laughs> um, Aleutian Isle sinking up in San Juan Islands. Um, we flew the drone nearly every day, several times a day. We can change out a battery within 10 seconds, have the drone back up in the air. Uh, we're able to, to connect it to an iPad so that a person not flying the drone can actually visually see what the drone operator seen and can actually take pictures and zoom in via the iPad. Um, by the time I got to this event, the main suspicion we had was that when the divers were underwater, they were creating a disturbance and releasing pocketed fuel from the vessel, which was being released up to the surface. 
if we hadn't had the drone, we would have had to fly a helicopter, which is uh, $21,000 an hour, mobilized a search and rescue crew who are the helicopter pilots, whereas a drone, I flew it. I took a before analysis of what was going on in the water. I saw no sheen, no pollution. As soon as the operation began the dive, um, we started noticing that pollution was actually occurring. It was not a recoverable product, and uh, but it just gave us an idea of exactly how everything was going. And uh, we were able to spot whales before they got into the area. We were able to spot where sheen had accumulated. It was pretty old and weathered at that point as well. So it gave us a really great idea of how much pollution was actually in the water. <clears throat> Things we've learned throughout our time uh, flying drones, uh, we take into account distance and wind resistance when planning operation. Um, we're rated to 40 mile per hour winds. I wouldn't really go that high to be quite honest with you. Um, Camera angles, uh, just like being on the shore, you may not see the sheen. And if you position your drone in a certain way from an angle from the sun and the, the camera can move at a 90 degree angle, if you're able to, uh, sometimes you, you see it in one shot and you move the, the drone two feet to the left and you can't see it. So we do, we do uh, 360, um, overlooks all the time uh seaplane operators uh, we have had issues in the especially during the Aleutian island they were not respecting uh temporary flight restriction areas which the coast guard had set up and along with uh, the canadian coast guard i believe because in that area the airspace actually belongs to canada so we've had some issues with that um, other drone operators, like I said, we are actually FAA commercial rated uh, drone operators and uh, we we have a flight plan, we file it, we, we're professionals. Um, people who go out and buy a drone, not so much, so we've had issues with that as well. Um, and of course, finally, working with the Navy to fly in their airspace. That's, it's always a bit difficult. We get a lot of pushback, but eventually we can make it happen. And that's all I have. If you have any questions, please let me know. Yes, sir. We cannot. Um, I haven't used it, but apparently it does. I haven't. I don't know how to use it. So I think we just figured that out and uh, we're probably going to do some more training on that. We are constantly training with them. So, yes, sir. Yeah, you talked about the hourly cost for a helicopter versus a boat. What's the hour? Did you say what the hourly cost is for the drone? So that actually just came out, I think, last week by the MPFC. And I think they estimated it to be $30 an hour. Wow. So I have, I have uh, federalized, I have been the project manager for three federalized cases in the past six weeks. 
and um, we haven't charged anything for them because using me is being charged, but they just came out with a number $30. I don't know how they said it, but that's about it. Yes, sir. They are, they can be included in case packages. If the case were to go to court, we could absolutely use that as evidence against uh, the responsible party if needed to. Yes, sir. You talked about the data download and the airdrop and kind of uh, texting or emailing the, the files. Is there a way or is there technology that you know of that um, you guys can do real time feed into the command post and have people kind of watching live? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> No, we can't do that. Um, MSRC does, but I think they have much more expensive drones than we do. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think they do. They're running, they did it with the Mavic 2 Pro, um, but, but what they're doing is they're streaming it over from the iPhone into Teams. So they're just doing a screen, a screen share in Teams. We're able to screen share to an iPad because we connected, but it's all wired. I mean. So if your iPad is logged into Teams and then you do a screen share, same thing MSRC is doing. So our teams, I think are, because the problem is, is our teams are protected by firewalls. Yeah, you're inside the DOT firewall. So that, yeah. that becomes your problem. Yes, yeah. I believe that's the that, problem. Right. We are, our, we had a grand vision of installing uh, 30-inch TVs in the back of our vans so that everybody on site could actually see what's going on. But I think we're a long way from that. Yes, ma'am. You have to be able to see it the whole time. Is that that range? That, do you have to be able to see your own drone while you're flying? So we operate in teams of two. Uh, there's a pilot and an observer. Um the observer should be able to see the drone at all times, but the the real reason for the observer is more to state what hazards are in the air. Seagulls, other drones, seaplanes, especially around, around Lake Union. Um, boats have really tall mast. <laughs> uh, our drones can only fly up to 400 feet and some masts are 150 feet so um we try to keep a visual distance but obviously our drones are fairly small i mean they're about this big so if you're flying it a mile away you're not going to be able to see it so we we try to keep a an idea of where it is at all times give that information to the observer and um that's how we operate. Landing operations, obviously, always a visual one. But when when the FAA talks about line of sight with drones, they're really talking about VHF uh, radio line of sight, like don't fly it around a mountain, not the other side of the building. You don't want to lose signal to the drone. Well, that's true. We have lost uh, signal with drones, and we just hit the home button. They usually come back sometimes. <laughs> Um, I sometimes had a, they go in the water and it would be island. Sometimes they do. <laughs> so when we, uh, Dan and I stopped by and, and heard your presentation at the sector, you guys were like the prototype 
sector or a sec yeah sector. Now is Portland gotten into drones or is it spreading? Uh, I know that it's spreading. I know that the strike teams across the country have them. I know that other sectors have them. I think we were the first sector to obtain our 107 commercial license. Um, yeah, I think this is going to be very common. And one of the reasons why we're so diligent about capturing all of our flights and, and a cost analysis and all that is to prove to headquarters this is why we need to invest in a $1,000 drone versus a $14,000 helicopter flight for 20 minutes. So that's, uh, yeah, that's that. You started off with a, some DJIs, but that's not what you're flying anymore, right? We start off with Evo. No, I'm sorry, Typhoons. Um, the Typhoon H1. Now we're flying the Evo one, and those are going to both be obsolete within, I think, a year. Um, there's the Typhoon apparently has is not it, well. It's not very reliable. That's why we want to get rid of it. The Evo is reliable, but it's not. It's not as good as we would like it to be. And um, we can't use any manufacturer that manufactures anything overseas. And to find a drone manufacturer that doesn't have parts come from China is not exactly easy. I know that they do have drones coming up online. Um, I can't remember the name of them, but they will look a lot like the smaller Evo 1. And... Uh, I mean, we've been very pleased with the performance of this one, so it's been great. What's your availability for drones on site during an, an oil spill? Now, we we use MSRC to fly drones, but um, you might be closer. So what's your availability to fly and provide data to the command post? Well, if we respond, we bring a drone. So if we're there, there's going to be a drone in the air if flight um, Flight is cap capable. Uh, I mean, if flight is permitted and if we can do it. So awesome. <laughs> right. So we don't. Uh, I think we have. Because uh, wasn't there a drone from MRSRC deployed at Aleutian Isle? No, Aleutian Falcon. Aleutian Falcon. Yeah. We didn't have a drone program back then. No, no, we flew a, that was the first time uh, we flew a drone for response and we brought it down uh, at about one o'clock in the morning because we needed to see if there was any oil in the water. We actually ended up using it more for firefighting They because uh, it had an infrared camera on it and you could place the cursor on any spot on the vessel's hull and it would give you back a temperature. And so the MSRC drone operator, Dan Klinert, stood next to the Tacoma Fire Department battalion chief on the dock flying around the, the ship, and we used it to set fire boundaries and direct firefighting water. The other thing that we ended up using it for was looking down on the thing on the top of the ship going, what are those? Are those chlorine tanks above the fire? And as it turned out, 900 pounds of chlorine, acetylene bottles, drums of gasoline, drums of hydraulic oil that uh, we didn't know about 
and and wouldn't have unless we'd had the look down view from the drone. I remember that. <laughs> uh, I I don't think it's a, about a to answer your question about precedence. I don't think it's a matter of precedence. Um, just from personal experience, if my command wants a drone in the air, they're gonna want us in the air. They they've they're just gonna say we need the FOSCR to have a drone in the air and get his own take on the situation. Uh, we trust our port partners. We work with them. We trust our Osros. We work with them. But at the end of the day, the command is probably going to request Coast Guard footage. So, Anybody else have questions? Yeah, Dan, Dave Sawicki here. Yeah, Dave, go ahead. Just to clarify, the FAA 107 is very clear. Line of sight is from the observer. It's not related to the uh, VHS signals. So just um, typically, no, I, I fly DJI drones and they're about the same size as the Typhoon and the Evo. Um, but if, on a good day, I could see maybe 12, 1300 feet because of the cloudiness of, well, just air, clouds in the air and that kind of thing. Secondly, the DJI drones, it's my understanding that the US will not buy one of those because of the the issues that the speaker said about the software and hardware in it. I know my DJI drone software, although I'm FAA certified, if I'm in a, a restricted area or a no-fly area, it won't even take off on the ground from the ground unless I go get a permit and then there's a, a process I have to go through. So uh, there's a technology issue um, and obviously the Coast Guard has to deal with given who's buying their drones. I, I understand that. But just to clarify, it's about a 1,200 feet visual line of sight. Beyond that, you're not going to see a small drone. Uh, you, you know where they are all the time because you've got the map, like a picture-in-picture -picture map on the screen, so you know exactly where it is with latitude and longitude and elevation. But uh, that's not to say you can see it from there. So. And I applaud the Coast Guard for having two people on the team, one especially to be watching out for their aircraft because uh, other people don't care. I know with mine, I have a ground-to-air transmitter and I out transceiver. And if there's another airplane within a quarter mile of where I am, by law, I have to land my, my drone. I don't know if those are restrictions that the Coast Guard has or not, but really good presentation. And I thank you for your efforts and, and moving forward with the process. Alex, well done. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Um, yeah, we, we have laws we have to follow. We can't fly over residential. We can't fly next to a flying airplane, things like that. So we do, we are applicable to all those laws. Yeah, we flew your drone on the Alaskan Victory, right? That was Pier 91, it's a fishing vessel, diesel spill. Oh, yeah, I was there. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long night. <laughs> seven course or test uh, how rigorous is that and what kind of a time commitment did you go through well so i had a bit of an advantage personally prior to joining the coast guard i was a prior pilot with an instrument rating so for me it was pretty fast um it's really personal um we did probably four or five training sessions um uh, every single one of our Minus, I'm sorry, 
99% of all of our uh, pilots have passed the first try with uh, 75 or better, I believe. So uh, we are lucky enough that right now in our office, we have uh, Lieutenant Adele, who is a Coast Guard pilot, who is currently grounded, but she does give great classes. And uh, the study material is not free. We were able to get some some uh, paid for by the government. So we were able to actually take practice tests as well. Uh, I thought the actual test was harder than any practice test I I took personally. But it's it's really personal commitment. Dave, you had a study course you recommended for those who wanted to get a part 107 a course you took, didn't you? Yeah, it took about six, eight hours of online stuff. I did not have a background in aviation. So, and I'm Polish, so it was a little bit, maybe more <laughs> slower than most. But uh, the online courses are typical that I took, or I think it was 50 bucks to get it online. And you take the exam tests as you go unit by unit. And if you miss it, you can go back and retake it and pass it. And then the final exam, I had to go down to the Arlington Airport and get a proctored test online. And they're, they're very particular about you can't bring any paperwork or notebooks or anything in with you. But the, the online tests were much more demanding than the final FAA certification test. And they basically focused on aeronautical maps and weather. Pretty, if I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> Put it that way. It's not as hard as the instrument test. I'll give you that much. <laughs> Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Tactics Meeting. If you enjoyed the program, do us a favor and share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have a topic you'd like to hear us discuss or would like to be a guest on the program, you can email me. The email address is podcast at the Tactics Meeting. Com. You know, I'm an active emergency manager and get involved in drills, exercises, and plan writing. So I can support you in any way. You can use the same email address, please. Just drop me a line. Now, let's get back to work.